Welcome back to Sermon Notes. Michael here alongside our producer, Josh, as always, making it all work for us. And got Garland with us this week. Garland, welcome. Glad to be here. Having a good summer? I am. Back from all the vacation time, and uh, we're looking at John still. As I left, we were looking at John, and I'm back. We're still in John, which is a thrill, actually, because I think it's awesome. Yep, and as much, we're spending 21 weeks in John, and it feels like we're just barely getting into it. Yeah. So with this unique format we have, we've been talking about this all along. We had seven weeks where we talked about the I am statements. We had seven weeks where we talked about the miracles or the signs that that demonstrated the truthfulness of those I am statements. Now we're looking at seven different encounters that Jesus has had with different people. This week we're in John chapter eight, and we're looking at the first 11 verses of that chapter. Garland, just kind of remind us, where are we in the story and the life of Jesus? What's happening around John chapter eight? Yeah, so John is is uh, intentionally painting a picture of Jesus as the one who fulfills these major expectations from the calendar and the rituals and the locations of ancient Israel. So things that are situated at the temple and that are in the Torah and have a calendar, Jesus is essentially going and aligning with each of those events and saying, I'm the real fulfillment of that thing. And the passage we're going to be looking at here is John 8, 1 to 11. And this is, uh, we're going to talk in in a minute about the some of the difficulties with this passage, but it's smack dab in the middle of a really important sequence of events that John has laid out for us. Uh, John 7, Jesus goes up to the festival of tabernacles or booths or where the Israelites would basically have a big camp out to remind themselves of when they uh, were wandering in the wilderness and God took care of them for seven days. And uh, in that festival, there's a whole thing going on with water and with light and Jesus with the water and the light will point those back to himself saying statements like, uh, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. I'm the living water and from you will flow springs of living water. And right after this in John 8 verse 12, he'll begin talking about how he is the light of the world. So John is weaving together this feast of tabernacle theme and having Jesus presented as the true fulfillment of everything that the feast of tabernacles represents, the provision and deliverance and salvation of Yahweh. It's now found in Jesus. And in the middle of that, (laughs) this really carefully woven um, theme that John is developing we have this story, uh, John 8, 1 to 11. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about just the story itself. Like you said, there's some things we're going to get into on it, but as far as just the content of the passage, um, it's a familiar story, the woman caught in adultery. We've always heard, he who is without sin cast the first stone. Right. It's a famous saying, but what's happening in this passage? What are some things that you've teased out as you've studied this over the last few weeks? Yeah, so so the story itself, um, we have uh, a woman that the text does not seem to give any indication that this woman is uh, innocent. Um, not only is she uh, seemingly guilty of adultery, she's been caught in the act, and they seem to think they've got enough witnesses. And you can go look at Deuteronomy 17 and Deuteronomy 19 to get at least some of the teaching in the Torah on this. They were very judicious, uh, the law was, about how you could try these cases. They needed a, a pretty high standard or bar of jurisprudence. You couldn't just condemn somebody on a rumor. You had to have a pretty high bar of witnesses. And that's why we're, we don't really get much indication that these kinds of cases went this far very often in ancient Israel because the bar was pretty high to convict. But there's nothing in this text that seems like this woman's not 
guilty. And so it's a really clever, we're told in the passage that this is a trap. It is a test. You can see that in verse six, the, the motive of the religious leaders, they're called the scribes and the Pharisees here. Um, they seem less interested in the justice issue. Notice they don't bring the man. The man is also supposed to be brought before uh, this kind of a, a trial. We might say they just bring the woman. Uh, so they're already a little bit out of bounds there. And we're told their motive. They are more interested in setting Jesus up. And here's the setup. And it's a really clever setup. I'll give it to him. Here's the setup. Um, if he says, okay, she's innocent. Let's not, let's, let's, let's declare her innocent. Let's let her go. Then he's, he's in danger of violating the Torah. You're light on the law, Jesus. And that's going to really frustrate, especially this large crowd gathered together. I mean, tens of thousands would come into town for this. It's a really public trap. And now Jesus would be in trouble with the religious leaders. He's in in trouble with the people of Israel. Or if he says, no, 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 let's go ahead and move forward with this execution. She's guilty. And let's convict her as guilty. And let's punish her as guilty. Then he gets in trouble with the Romans. The Romans are very nervous. Tens of thousands are in town. And now they can, they can say, look, Jesus led a violent insurrection uprising over here. He's not for the Romans. So they've got him either way. And as often happens in these, in these gospel accounts, Jesus just masterfully one-ups them. And we are actually meant to see in a lot of these stories in, in the honor shame culture of ancient Rome, uh, to be able to, to outwit or outsmart or step out of these kinds of traps from, these are the, the experts, the scribes are experts in the law. A reader in ancient Rome would see that and go, whoa, who's this guy? This guy really must be smart. He really is wise. And so one of the things John wants us to see is they keep trying to trap him in all these gospel accounts and he keeps getting out of it. And we're supposed to see that and go, That's, there's some brilliance in Jesus. And it's famous. Uh, he begins to write in the ground. And then the famous line, he was without sin, throw the first stone, and one by one they leave. Uh, So that's the story in a nutshell. Um, But it comes with a twist, we might say, this story. Yeah. So my Bible has not one but two brackets. The double bracket, Around the beginning. And so if I look down at the bottom, I'm using the ESV here, the subscript, the footnote says, some manuscripts do not include chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. Others add the passage here, or after 736, or after 2125, or after Luke 2138, with variations in the text. So it begins with this phrase, some manuscripts. So what am I to do with that as a modern Bible reader? What is what is the editor telling me about this, this manuscript? First, first of all, what is a manuscript? Yeah, so this, this we're not going to have time in our service this week because we're going to kind of try to experience this passage more than even teach it. We're going to walk through it through a worship service, um, but we're not going to get to touch on this much at all. Um, the, what we have to deal with when we read the Bible is when we read our Bible, we are reading um, not only a translation of ancient texts, but we're reading uh, the editors, and they're called textual critics, their best effort at taking ancient manuscripts and collecting them together to form what we might say is the best representation of this original text. So what is a manuscript? A manuscript is an ancient um, 
fragment. Some of them are very, very, very small. Some of them have the whole New Testament. So it's an ancient fragment or writing, piece of writing that has our texts um, contained within it. And so uh, many of the earliest that we have are written on animal skin. Um, And so these are, we might say, our earliest. And oftentimes um, they get favored. Um, And so these early manuscripts, the ones that are written on animal skin, uh, we can date some of these all the way back to the uh, fourth century, fourth and fifth century. And so um, those early best manuscripts that we have of John do not include this section here. Other manuscripts that we have were written on uh, papyrus scrolls. So it's basically uh, you would take a papyrus reed, roll it out, bash it down together, and then you smooth it all out. It kind of has a glue as you mash it down, and it formed ancient paper, and these were rolled into long scrolls. And uh, a lot of our manuscript evidence of the New Testament was written on these papyrus scrolls. And uh, of course, they wither and die in in like moist climates. So we found a lot of these in really dry air in the Middle East and Egypt. And these manuscripts, um, we've got tons of them, tons of manuscripts of the New Testament. In fact, we have an embarrassment of riches compared to any other ancient document. And these manuscripts will often have small variations in them between the different manuscripts. So if you've got a, a if you've got a collection of manuscripts of John. Some are animal skin, some are on papyrus scroll. We also have collections of ancient church fathers, church writers who are quoting from these gospels. We could see, okay, they're quoting from John 7 here, then they skip 8, 1 to 11, they go down. So those also are included. We lay all of those out, and then we have a decision to make as editors or textual critics. Okay, when we have these variations, and I'll say it now, there are variations in almost every verse of the New Testament. There's some kind of a textual difference in almost every one of them. We then have to decide what do we think happened here and what's the best way to go. And on some cases, in fact, the majority of the cases, like 96 plus percent of the cases, we're talking tiny little errors that are really easy to explain. Like you could, this, this manuscript's missing a letter here because the scribe just missed it. Or there, these two words are out of order. Jesus Christ, our Lord versus Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so most, the overwhelming majority of our manuscript variants or where they disagree are things like that. Um, there's a handful of places where the manuscripts have a pretty substantial disagreement. And here's this, this John chapter eight is one of those examples in the overwhelming amount of our early and best manuscripts. This passage is not here in John's gospel, uh, later manuscripts. So we're talking centuries later. We, as your note says, we see it sometimes here, sometimes a little bit earlier. There's a Luke manuscript that has it in Luke, uh, right after the, the Olivet discourse in Luke or right before it, I should say. And so what do we do with that? <laughs> that leaves us with a difficulty. And that's why your Bible is giving you a bracket. I think some give italics, some omit it. Um, here's probably what we can say in summary. It is m- most likely, in fact, almost certain, if we find a manuscript, we'll change this, of course, an earlier one, it's very likely that John did not write this section. Um, in fact, there's some words in here that he never uses in the rest of the gospel. So it's pretty unlikely that John wrote this, and most scholars would agree. However, uh, many scholars, in fact, we might say most scholars would say this is probably 
a true story that was passed down in an oral tradition about Jesus and that later scribes felt important to include. So we might say it's probably not in John. It's almost certainly not in John's original gospel text. However, it may reflect a true story of Jesus. And so uh, as such, uh, we're going to we're going to teach it on Sunday. We're going to experience it on Sunday. Um, I think it, I think we can read it. Um, and w- the reason we've been chasing this down for several minutes here is we don't want you people in our church to to get to things like this and go, oh no, somebody's been lying to me all along, or I can't trust the text now. Um, when there's a serious variant, it's a major issue where these texts disagree, your editors of your English translations will tell you. They'll alert you. And they're doing so here. They're, nobody's trying to pull the wool over your eyes. If you've got if you're a nerd and you're like, I like this, I want more on this. There's a, there's a, the, the book that I think is the easiest. It's not an easy read necessarily, but it's the easiest to kind of get your, dip your toe in the waters of this. It's by Bruce Metzger and it's called the text of the new Testament. If you're just out there listening to this going, I want more of this. I'm a manuscript nerd. Then be my guest and go, go uh, buy Bruce Metzger's the text of the new Testament. You can come to the office and borrow it. Um, it's, it's a good read. It's helpful. And it leaves me with confidence in the text that we have, not uh, doubt and fear. So we thought it was worth, you know, spending a few minutes here, um, you know, at least addressing this issue because um, it's a serious one. The entire passage this week is is in question. And so we wanted to address it. Yeah, that's good. You did a good job just breaking that down for us. I want to just reiterate something you said because I don't want it to just slide by, which is we have a ton of confidence in the vast majority of our Bible, especially the New Testament. And there is no document in the history of mankind that has been more scrutinized than the Bible. And yet, um, as you said, we have scores of old, old copies, more than any other ancient document. And so I just want to reiterate that even though we're not exactly sure how this particular passage fits into the canon, um, man, we have a ton of confidence that what the original New Testament writers wrote is what has been transmitted to us. Yeah, there's a New Testament scholar just says it this way. Um, while there's still questions and we don't have the originals, um, we can be confident that God in his wisdom and sovereignty has saw fit to preserve for us the book that he wants us to have. Right. We have we still have questions. We and, and I'm sure if you're listening to this and you're going, I, I still got questions how this got in or how did this canon form or where that we'd love to process those with you, but just, just, just a very renowned scholar. We have in God's wisdom and sovereignty, the text that he wants us to have, and we can have a confidence in that. Doesn't answer every question, but we can have a confidence in that. And so, uh, like I said, keep ask these questions. These are good things to talk about. We don't want people in our church uh, to, to have one of these sneak up on them and they think, this has never been addressed. What do I do? I have no confidence anymore. The Bible has right. fallen apart on me. So, um, and, we, and I'm gonna get to mention this in about 30 seconds on Sunday. So um, if you needed more, hopefully this helped you a little bit. Buy that Metzger book and put it on your shelf. <laughs> yeah, and... I can speak for both of us when I say the more we've studied it, the more confident we are in it. Yes. Yeah. So, all right. So that, with that said, um, Garland, in just the last few minutes we have here on our podcast, what should we take away from this passage, from this story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery? What, what's the lesson for us in this passage? Yeah. When I've reflected on it, I've actually, the question I've been asking, and this is a very, you know, uh, dorky question, but it's been, okay, so a scribe has an oral tradition. And he wants to include it. Um, why here 
you know, why would a, why would a scribe put it here? And that's the question that I've been simmering on. You could put it anywhere. In fact, some push put it as an appendix, it seems, at the end of John. But why did, did the scribes that inserted it put it here? And here's the my stab at that answer. Jesus has gone up to the, t- the, the Feast of Tabernacles and presenting himself as the meta story of God's deliverance and salvation for his people. And it's big and it's grand. He's the living water. He's the light of the world. All that big, amazing stuff. And what an amazing, beautiful way to demonstrate that. Jesus, contra these claims of the religious leaders as being the true Messiah and the true one who delivers and saves, then this really like piercing, personal, gritty story. That's the question I've been wrestling with. And to me, that's that's really a, it's a beautiful story. Now, I think as we read it, um, obviously the grace of Jesus is the famous part. Jesus has the ability to look at this group and say, he is without sin or the first stone. They one by one leave. And then the, the line, does no one condemn you? Then I don't condemn you. And I think we want to stop there, especially as, uh, you know, modern, postmodern, millennial and down, you know, younger American Christians go, look, that's the Jesus we like. It's all grace. It's all forgiveness. It's all love all the time. But there's a, it doesn't end there. He, he literally says, uh, in translating it from Greek, he says, go and no longer be in sinning, present tense, no longer be sinning. Or I like the NIV's translation, which is, no, uh, leave your life of sin. Jesus is not just the lovey-dovey lamb holding, you know, I'm here to let you do what you want, and you get to go to heaven when you die, because I love you, and you can, do, you can figure it all out, and I bless you. Jesus has come to show us how to truly be human. He looks at this woman and says, I'm setting you free. That's amazing. And it is beautiful. Then he says, now come experience a life of that. And it's in following me. And as we read this, both the grace of Jesus and that kingship or that truth of Jesus is on display. And as I've been reading it and looking at it and studying it again, uh, I just fell in, fallen back in love. I just said fell in. I've just fallen back in love with the beauty of this passage. And as a result, that's why on Sunday, we're just going to kind of weave our this passage into some singing because I think that's what we need to do. Um, it's a beautiful story of the grace and kingship of Jesus offering not only forgiveness, but the ability to go and live a life of what we're truly meant to do and be. And so, uh, yeah, uh, I, hope, I hope this is a, a week where we can leave singing about the grace and mercy of Jesus. Mm, yeah. I love how you framed that up for us. And to me, that's the power of this whole encounter section is that the great I am, the covenant keeping creator God of Israel, who has power over disease and um, nature and even death itself, we saw in the in the signs portion of our teachings, has these, you use the word granular, I love that, these very personal, intense encounters with individuals. These aren't encounters with large groups of people. It's one confused religious leader. It's one um, woman living as an outsider. This week, it's one woman who's been um, accused and is on the verge. She's basically on the ancient Israel version of death row. Yeah. And Jesus has an encounter with her. And just the thought that that is the same God um, is, is pretty overwhelming. Yeah. Well, thanks, Garland. Thanks for the work you put into this. Looking forward to the sermon. And I'm also looking forward to next week when we'll be back on Sermon Notes. Awesome.